Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company or how big the team, we showcase sales leaders that are taking what the market gives and then some. We feature leaders and teams that are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and doing it predictably and sustainably. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Exvoyant, the one-on-one sales improvement platform that's transforming how high-growth sales leaders use Salesforce around the world. Create one-on-ones your reps will thank you for and use Exvoyant to help your sales managers create unique plans for every rep on your team. Exvoyant is joining Outreach in New York and Boston, August 20 and 22, as part of the Outreach Summit Series. Check out the schedule and let us know if you're coming. We'd love to meet you there. Now, get ready for some serious insights from sales leaders that are making it happen. And remember, don't worry, we've got you. Hello and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. Today, we're joined by Colin Cadmus. Vice President of Sales for Aircall. Aircall is a cloud-based phone system for sales and support teams that integrates into every sales and support tool your team currently uses. Colin leads a team of 50 salespeople, and under his leadership, they're having unprecedented growth. Colin is a lifelong salesperson and has had success as a rep, a trainer, and now as an executive sales leader. I am stoked to dive into his leadership blueprint and have him share how he has had so much impact so fast. Colin, welcome to our show, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Excited to, to chat with you today. Yeah, I'm excited. I've been wanting to get you on the show. I'm a fan of uh, what I'm seeing come from you content-wise and LinkedIn and other places, and you're, you're doing some really cool things, and, and uh, this is going to be a fun one, man. Can, can you start by telling everybody a little bit about Aircall? Yeah, for sure. So Aircall is a cloud-based phone system, uh, mainly targeting sales and support teams today, but planning to expand into different teams like HR and recruiting. Um, really what, what Aircall does is it solves all of the problems that every sales leader or support leader has had with their phone system. Um, what attracted me, I think, to, to coming here, which is a great way to kind of explain what it is, is I've been on the buying end of that. In my last VP of sales role, I had uh, – we were bootstrapped. We had no sales ops folks. And I had to roll out a phone system myself. And I've been through the pain of rolling out three or four different systems and going through the struggles of integrations not working well, call quality not delivering, uh, UIs being a pain in the neck to teach people how to use, uh, or the struggles of trying to scale a team that is using hard phones on your desk. And so Aircall solves all those problems. You get a call center set up within minutes and integrate into all the tools that you're using. And that is, uh, yeah, that's what we're doing here. So, you guys are having some cool growth. I can't wait to dive into what you've done to, to take a team that has a really cool product that solves a really important problem. Like the problem you just described, Colin, is a problem that everybody has to deal with. And yeah. communication problems are always going to be a problem because communication is going to change. Like for your business, it's got to change like daily, right? It really does. I mean, we, we always say no matter how much emailing or Slack or text or video chat comes into play, uh, there's nothing that's going to ever do away with voice. And you have to be able to pick up the phone and talk to your prospects or talk to your customers. Uh, and being able to scale that across, you know, whether it's globally or whether you have uh, workers working remote out of their house, you need a flexible system today. And, and that's what Aircall delivers. <laughs> 
All right, so now you just gave me something that we'll get to in a minute because you have the tech that gets people so they can talk. You're doing a great job making it so your reps are able to have conversations that matter. I want to dive into that. But before we do, uh, I want to have you share your story. You've got a really cool story about how you got into sales, what led you to air call. You and I are kindred spirits, and I want you to share that with our listeners. For sure. So great question. Um, I have been basically, I guess, selling things as long as I can remember. Uh, I remember my, probably my first experience selling something was more of a service. I used to look forward to snow days uh, when I was in elementary school, middle school, high school. And most kids would look forward to those days because you had a day off of school and you could sit around and play Nintendo or, or, or you know, hang out with your friends. <clears throat> For me, I looked forward to it because I could grab a shovel and I could walk around all of my neighbors and charge them 20 or 40 bucks to shovel their driveway. And that was what was most exciting to me. So yeah, that was, I think my first glimpse at, wow, I can talk to someone and convince them to give me money if I give them some sort of value in return. Of course, I wasn't smart enough to realize the science behind it at that age, but uh, it's, it started young, right? And, And then I've kind of just continued to do that up until where I'm at today. Um, at about nine years old, uh, I had an opportunity to do some odd jobs for this guy who owned a sporting goods center in New Jersey. It was called Grand Slam. It was like one of those places where you go to have your birthday party. They have batting cages, a basketball court, a hockey rink, video games. And I used to play hockey out back on their rink all summer. We'd be out there with our friends. And one day the the owner came out, <clears throat> asked us to to come in and, and grab all of the balls out of the ball pit and load them into these hamper bags and drag them outside and hose them off with bleach water. And anyway, long story short, I ended up turning that into a job that I held for until I graduated high school and mostly gravitated towards working in their pro shop, selling baseball equipment and hockey equipment. And that's when I realized that I really knew how to sell and I enjoyed selling. I was selling baseball stuff that I knew absolutely nothing about. And I would just pick up on those talking points that I'd hear the owners say, uh, and I was able to be successful there. So I think that's, that's what led me into knowing I want to be in sales. Fast forward to graduating college, and it was 2008 peak of the recession. The job market could not have been worse. Um, there's, there was no worse time to graduate in my lifetime than, than 2008. So I took whatever job I could get. I got into retail management for CVS Pharmacy, uh, did an internship with them in Rhode Island, and uh, worked my way up to managing a store there, which was a great experience that I would never trade for anything. But uh, I knew I didn't want to do it forever. Working nights and weekends and holidays. I don't know if you've ever worked a retail job in your life, but it's really brutal and there's not a whole lot of payoff in the end for it. Uh, It it goes very much unnoticed and and the the earning potential (laughs) is pretty small to, to say the least. And so, you know, after four years of that, I realized it was time to, to force a change into my life because I, I couldn't keep doing it, didn't want to. And so I quit my job. I packed up a U-Haul with everything that I owned, and I drove back to mom and dad's house in New Jersey at 26 years old. And I said, hi, guys, I have no job. I have no money. I just bailed out on my lease, 
and I'm moving home <laughs> to, to try to figure out what I want to do. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, uh, that was a really depressing time. That was, that was the lowest point of my life, to be honest with you, but it turned out to be the best decision that I ever made. And so I spent six months doing some soul searching, figuring out what the heck do I want to do. Um, and then in the back of my head, I always knew sales was, was what I was good at, but that means a million things, right? Yep. What, what are you going to go sell? How do you narrow that down to actually picking a, a career path? And my brother-in-law was, uh, the director of sales for college humor. They sell, uh, advertising space. And he said, come to work with me one day, just check out the office and, and see if something clicks, see what you think. And I went there and I was immediately like, like a kid in a candy store. I see ping pong tables and kegs of beer and people on the phones, you know, having fun, making lots of money, dressed in shorts and a t-shirt. And I, I could not believe my eyes. It was my first glimpse into a casual office where people are actually having fun doing uh, their work. And I knew right away, I, I need to do something like this. Of course, I asked him for a job and he said, no, you don't have enough experience. So uh, I said, well, what kind of experience do I need to, to get a job like this? And he said, go, go get an entry level sales job, go pound the phone somewhere. And so you know, I, I went on LinkedIn, started searching for, for that type of opportunity, <clears throat> found one at a company called Single Platform, who at the time had just gotten acquired for $100 million, literally 30 days before uh, I ended up starting working there. And that bridged me into the opportunity of a lifetime because this company was only two years old. They were doing a very small amount uh, of revenue but they were acquired very early on for lots of money. So resources were endless. The growth that they were about to go through was tremendous. Uh, and so I started there in a group of 16 people that were hired that month uh, doing full cycle sales. We were making about 100 cold calls a day, running our own meetings, closing our own deals. And I saw this as just a huge opportunity to to work my my tail off and and rise above the rest of the people there. And so, you know, I was also a bit older than the rest of the folks in, in my group. They were mostly hired straight out of school and I had that four years of experience. So I think I, I, I took it really seriously and I, I didn't get wrapped up in the social environment of that, that office. And I really just pounded the phones and did everything that I could to be the very best, uh, and, and managed to pull that off. And then it, it grew into an opportunity to become the head of sales training and start being the person who would teach all of the salespeople every month. We were hiring 10 to 15 people, sometimes upwards of 20 in a given month. And so I was able to take that over for our VP of sales did that over the course of, I think, nine or 10 months, hired about 150 people. And really, that was what, what spearheaded everything for me into eventually becoming a VP of sales. I love your story, man. I, I freaking love it. And I love that, just the description of a kid in a candy shop when you made it to a sales floor for the first time. I, <laughs> I, I, I love that because it sets up like maybe two or three things that I think will be really cool for us. And, and I'm going to guess that that experience and other ones that followed it helped you build, you know, organizations because we're going to talk about culture today. We're going to talk about leadership today. We're going to talk about these things that, you know, drew you like a magnet to this, the world's greatest profession, right? So, yeah, for sure. So let's start with that. So you were a killer salesperson individually. You're wired for it. You know, guys uh, like, like ourselves that maybe be wired for it. Sometimes people say, Oh, Colin, isn't it, aren't you lucky that you're just, 
naturally gifted. You could sell ice to an Eskimo. And if you're like me, you're, you're like, you know what? Either you just don't know sales or it's almost a little offensive because I, I put a lot of effort into my craft, right? I mean, I, I don't take anything for I don't just show up and sell. I, I work hard at it. And, yeah. and so being a great salesperson is one thing. Being a great sales leader is a totally different thing. You've had success being both. It's a really important topic that we don't discuss enough on this show. How have you been able to bridge the gap and leverage the skills that made you great as a salesperson to helping you become great as a sales leader? Great question. Yeah, I think that mistake's made very often. People always assume I'm a great salesperson. I can, I can be a great sales leader or I'll enjoy being a sales leader as much as, as being a salesperson. It's definitely not always the case. Um, for me, it happened naturally. When I was uh, on the phones at Single Platform, I was about six months into the job and was at that point was, was really good at it. I had my process down. Um, you know, I came in every day, did my routine. The numbers were extremely predictable. Uh, and like I said before, we were hiring 10 to 15 people a month. And so we always had new people on the floor that were always hungry to learn. We had a very small leadership team. Our VP of sales was essentially running everything on his own with just a couple of managers. And so people around us were very hungry for, for knowledge, for information, and for help, as they should be on, on any sales floor. And I found myself just gravitating towards wanting to help them. Since I had figured it out, uh, I wanted to be able to help other people figure it out. And so I, I naturally was – it came to a point that I actually asked if I could sit with the, the new hires – and that was where I think my, my VP of sales recognized that I, that I had a little bit of a knack for training and teaching people. And I think what it really comes down to is two things. One is crystal clear communication. And the other is not ever making an assumption that people understood what you said. And that helps you in sales. It helps you even more when you're teaching anything. Uh, you know, there's nothing worse than sitting in a classroom or being taught something and the person's talking and you get to that point where, where, where you lost them and you're behind and they don't come back to check if, if you're there. And then at that point, you're too far behind. You're never catching up. Everyone's felt that in a classroom or, or whatever learning setting, you know, you've been in. And for me, I've just always had a hyper awareness of that. And I think that I can almost see it on someone's face when I've lost them. Uh, I make sure to reiterate things a thousand times over uh, and just really emphasize on the most important things and never assume that people understand. You always have to over explain. And I think that's what any great teacher does. Uh, and, and that to me is, is really what it takes to become a sales leader, particularly in a startup where you're doing lots of training, you're developing lots of new people. You have to be able to teach. And if you can figure out how to do that, I think some of it has to probably come naturally and you have to really enjoy it. Some of it can be learned and, and you can perfect it, but that's what it came down to for me. So that, that makes like brings up a question to me, Colin. I'm really interested uh, to get your take on this. It's not something you and I have talked about, but I can't wait to get your take. I've always found that role, what, what role perception is, it drives what people think a high and low value activity is, it drives how they spend time, it drives what tools they use, it drives how they prioritize, all that stuff. What do you think the role is for a sales leader versus maybe the, I, I think salesperson's easy, you gotta close, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta sell stuff, that's the role of a salesperson. If you were to say the role of a sales leader, what's the role? Cause I think that's where a lot of the problem comes from is sometimes they don't really get the role maybe clear. 
Yeah, so it definitely depends on the stage of the company, but you know, to speak to let's say an early stage startup, maybe your seed stage, uh, Series A, Series B, maybe even Series C, uh, the role is is very much number one, being able to train and teach salespeople, and then you get to a point where you need to be able to train and teach sales managers to then replicate what you're doing. So I think that that's the, the first that. thing. Yeah, you, that, you have dude. to be able to do it. That's how you go from one stage to the next. Some people, I think, are, are great teachers, but when you have to teach a manager how to teach, uh, that's actually a lot harder. And you know, I'm still figuring that out to some extent. Um, yeah. You really need to hire great people there. But that's the main role, right? If if you can't teach and you can't train people how to sell, you should not be a sales leader, uh, no matter what. And and then from there, it goes into you need to be able to build really strong relationships with your team. You need to be able to learn what drives them, um, and you need to be able to identify the right talent for the right role and not be afraid to make the decisions you need to make to make sure those people are in those roles. So I think, I think it's broken down between those two things, and if you, can, if you can nail all of those things home, you'd probably be pretty successful. That's a really good answer to that question. I, Like I said, we work with tons of sales leaders around the world, and that's always a fun question for me. I ask a sales leader, what's your role here? And uh, it's funny how different the answers are, Colin. That's a really good answer. My answer is I always try to have fun with it. I said, the role of a salesperson is to produce. The role of a sales leader is to reproduce. And so I say, yeah, I want you to reproduce with your reps. And what I mean by that is reproduce skills so they can therefore produce. It's a great summary, yeah. And so, awesome. So let's take those things in your role. And let's talk about how you do it. You've done some amazing things. You, Your growth in the last year at Aircall, it's awesome, dude. I mean, that's it's, it's, it's a head turner. It's, it's impossible to overlook. Uh, you're a humble guy. And so you're not going to want to take the credit for it, but I'll, I'm going to throw some your way. You've come in and, and you've thrown gas on a fire. You have a cool product. You have a great problem that you solve all those things. But what you've done is come in and said, now we're going to do something about it. What goes into the Colin Cadmus blueprint for sales leadership? <laughs> Is there two or three kind of non-negotiables, things that you say, hey, when I got to air call or any sales leader that's listening, here are some things you might want to consider if you want to build a high growth or, or, uh, organization? Yeah, absolutely. There, there are. Um, and I've learned them over time, too, through, through definitely making plenty of mistakes. But the number one thing that, that I would recommend to anyone coming in to, to lead an already existing team, right? You're not building it from scratch. There's already some, some people there. You have to come in and start with the relationships. Forget about learning the product. Forget about starting to design the process or the tech stack. Forget about hiring. Come in and evaluate the team that's there and build really, really close relationships with them. Invest an insane amount of time in meeting with them one-on-one inside and out of the office. Um, also meeting with them in group settings. And I, I think I spent probably the first 30 to 60 days with almost 80 to 90% of my time just talking to people, um, not listening to their demos, not coaching them, just talking to them, letting them vent about things they're unhappy with, uh, letting them talk about things that they are happy with, finding out what their goals are, finding out what they want to do with their life, um, and, and even to the extent that they're comfortable learning about what goes on in their life you know, outside of work and, and just really trying to build those relationships. And from there, <clears throat> the next step for me is um, designing my org chart and, and making sure. Can we sure push pause? Can we push pause on that, Colin? For sure. Okay, so that's one. So one is relationships, and then we'll get into your two org chart. I, I don't want I, – I, I love your success and, and what you're doing so much. I want to make sure that for our listeners we, we push pause and we, like, let's twist this around and look at it from all sides for a minute if that's okay. Okay. Sure. 
the relationships, you know, there's a lot of ways we could interpret this. Um, I get that you say, I want to understand a lot of things about them. Um, what's the role of the relationship in, in how you're going to accomplish your role of te- teaching and training is what you said your primary role is to be a teacher, a trainer, a, a developer of new skills. Why is having a relationship your number one non-negotiable? Yeah, so uh, there's there's two really specific reasons. Number one, you, you have to build uh, trust with them and you have to earn their respect. And if you can't do those two things, uh, then it's either not going to work out for you or it's not going to work out for them. So that is the foundation of everything that comes after. So I like that. So you're trying to build trust and respect. So you're not, and I like that column because here's what I found. And I, and I can't wait to hear what you think on this. I learned a long time ago that going into a team and saying, do it because I said so, because I said so doesn't work with my 12 year old son, Colin. It never works with anyone. It for sure won't work with a professional salesperson, right? Absolutely. It doesn't even work in the, in the Navy SEALs. And, and you, would, you would think that that's exactly how they operate, and it is not at all. So you're not saying the relationship matters because – this is why I wanted – because I thought this is where you're going to go, but I want to say it because I think that we're about to go here is really important. The relationship isn't because you're best buddies and you're barbecuing and you're hanging out. It's because trust and respect. Those are two different things. Can you talk about the difference in – being buddy-buddy versus trust and respect and, and the difference yeah. and the importance. Because I think that's super important because, honestly, I think some leaders don't make that distinction, Colin. Yeah, they don't, and, and it takes time. And I've made that mistake before, too, and, and that's why I knew coming into AirCall that that was the most important thing to do. Um, the trust and respect go hand-in-hand, hand, right? And when you think back to any sales leaders that you've had in your day or, or any leader or mentor or what have you, if you don't trust them, you don't respect them, you're very unlikely to work hard for them or to take anything that they try to teach you and actually implement it. Uh, and I think that's probably the, the death of, of most sales leaders that they don't, they don't build that foundation and you can't do it with everyone too. That's, that's an important thing to notice. Uh, no matter how good you are, you're going to have some people that are just not bought into your vision that, that don't want to trust you. And you may not be able to even pinpoint the reason, but it's really important to work those people off the team, uh, and make sure that you have a team that's a hundred percent got your back and they know that you a hundred percent have their back. And from there, uh, everything gets a lot easier when, when you, when you take it from that, uh, from that angle. I'm so glad that you let me push pause on that because I think that that distinction makes that non-negotiable even more important. We're building trust and respect to you. I don't know if you know, Mark Smith, a good friend of mine that um, was on our show, that whole show ended up being about the importance of building trust. And so I'm really stoked that you're starting with, we're going to build trust. I don't really care. Like I'd rather you like me than not like me. Uh, I'm not looking for more buddies for the weekend, but if you can trust me, uh, I'm never going to have to ask for your trust because I will have earned it. And, yeah. and that's what Mark said. If you have to ask for trust, you screwed up. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's well said. Yeah, it really is. And, and it takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. You have to be patient with it. Okay. So that's good. So that was your first one. Then I pushed pause and then you went on to org. So let's, let's get to your second one. Cool. Yeah. So, so after you've established that trust, that, that relationship, you've earned their respect. Now what I like to do is take a look at, at the org chart. Remember you're walking into a team here that maybe is already somewhat developed. Make sure that people are in the right positions, right? And this ties back to making sure that everyone on the team is bought into your vision. And if they're not, this is the time where you need to make the tough decisions. And it could mean letting go of a really good salesperson, uh, because they are, you know, against everything that you're doing 
game. They don't believe in what you're trying to accomplish. And with that type of person on a team, you will not be successful. Um, and so it, that's where the tough calls come in and you have to make them fast and they're never easy, but the faster you make them, the faster you can move on. And I'll tell you every time that I've had to do that, it's always really surprising, uh, what actually happens versus what you thought was going to happen. And even if it's a top salesperson, uh, I've always followed my gut. If I felt like there wasn't a fit or I felt like they, they weren't behind me, uh, and they weren't behind my leadership. You work them out of the organization, and sometimes you go into it really nervous that there's going to be a bad reaction from the team. And to this day, I'm, I'm yet to see that actually happen. People go through the stage of shock where they're just surprised that that decision was made. And then within two or three days, usually you do that on a Friday, right? You have the weekend for the shock to wear off. Uh, <laughs> and then people come back, and all of a sudden, where you thought things were going to be worse and people might be upset and they might question you, uh, things are always a thousand times better. And some of that maybe comes back to just having the, the right gut choice. But if you know someone's not bought into the team and the rest of the people are, put their performance aside, it doesn't matter. Chances are the rest of the team actually feels that way too. And they'll feel a huge sense of relief uh, without that person there. And then they can do their jobs much better. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen that actually catapult other people's careers because sometimes that negative energy is actually holding other people back. And so you maybe let go of someone who you thought was a, a top performer. And then all of a sudden, the result of that is you see three other people who maybe were never even recognized come out, right? And, and all of a sudden, they feel the freedom to, to be a, a stronger part of that team. So that's you, you can't move forward without doing that. Um, you can't ignore it. And definitely don't wait for them to make the decision for you. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is the impact that it has on culture, right? So when well, you... Sorry, go ahead. No, I, I cut you off. I, I want you to finish because I got a bunch of notes. I, I, I got a, all kinds of questions for you on this one. I can't wait. So finish what you're saying. Sure, sure. Yeah, so so letting people go when they're not the right fit has a huge impact on culture. And uh, I think it was Gary Vaynerchuk who said something recently that, that I really bought into, and it made a ton of sense. And I realized that I had been doing this already without realizing it. Um, when you know someone's not a good fit, the concept of managing them out and getting them to make that decision for you is actually really bad because it sends a completely different message to the rest of the team, right? It tells them that they left on their terms. They weren't happy. We did something wrong. We lost that person. Whereas when you actually make the decision to let someone go, regardless of their performance, if they're not a good fit, it sends a very clear message to the team of what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and, and what we're aiming to build here. Uh, and you get a lot of advantages from that. And, and the, the culture of any team, let's say you're under 20 people, right, so it's a relatively small team. Every single time you make a decision to hire or fire someone, it changes the dynamic of the team. It changes the culture of the team. And the, the job of a sales leader is to make sure that all of those decisions change those things for the better. And if they do, then, then you're setting yourself up for, for the rest of scale. All right. So this is a really important one because this organizational stuff that you talk about, it goes to culture. And I don't know if you're planning to plan on talking about a little more of that as we get into your, your blueprint. But clearly you're building a culture that's based on trust and respect first, right? Yes. So right people in the right seats that are bought into the vision is what I'm hearing you say. <clears throat> and I was going to ask this question maybe a little later, but you've, you've teed it up. One of our listeners sent me uh, a question this week, um, and she, she asked me what is an interesting question, and, and um, I think it fits to what you just talked about because you, you're talking about how you build your, your culture. Uh, she said, 
what do you do if you inherit people that might not be good either at sales or may not be good at being a fit for where you want to take your team? What do you do about it and, and, you know, and when, and, and I think I know what you're going to say. What would you say to this listener with that, with that question that she'd send in? Yeah. As, as soon as you know those things to be true and your gut's telling you that you, you have to let them go. You have to part ways with them and, you know, do what you can to, to help them move on. If you think sales isn't right for them, give them that, that clear advice and, and tell them you're happy to help them, uh, you know, find the right role and you should be, you should follow through with that. I think that's really important. Um, but yeah, you have to make the decision to let them go. If, if you don't trust your instinct as a leader in, in those regards, you will end up with a team that's, that's dysfunctional pretty quickly. And, and the follow on hers was what if these are people that have been with the company for a while, like they're friends of the founder since day one, you know, any, any advice on that? Yeah, you have to challenge your, your founders and you have to manage up. And I, I've definitely been there. Um, I've been fortunate enough to have founders that have, have trusted me to to make those decisions. But I think it, you also need to set those expectations before you even take a sales leadership role. Um, it's it's very important to make sure that you're given the autonomy to make those decisions before you even walk into the role. And if you do that, you shouldn't have those problems. My favorite thing about what you said on this, Colin, is that people actually are – glad after the shock wears off. I, uh, you know, how many times I, I, I found this when you know that someone's wrong, when you know it's not going to work, we have this inclination of, Oh, I can fix it or I can work through it with them or I can make it better. Yeah. And then like a hundred percent of the time, maybe it's not, maybe there's like, well, this 1% outlier. Yeah. They always come back and say, I just wish I fired them immediately because all I did was prolong the inevitable and make a bigger problem. Is that, do you see the same thing? I think there's a balance there, right? I, I think you do need to some extent give people a chance, especially if you're coming in and, and you're brand new um, to the company. You can't necessarily assume that the way someone's behaving or performing today is how they will behave and perform after having your leadership and the changes you're going to put into place. So that's fair. I think- yeah, I think there's a, a sense of giving people some time to adapt and change. For me, it's typically 30 days. Um, if I don't see some serious changes in 30 days, it's probably never going to happen. Awesome. Okay, those are two good ones, and I, I appreciate that. That that concept of, you know, I'm going to be assertive yet fair in who's actually on this ride with us. I like that because that builds this culture of we all expect everyone to be you know, doing whatever the job is. And and I think that that's got to be something that's empowering for people. And and it's got to create a culture of, Hey, you know, nobody's just here. We're building something together. Is, Is that a byproduct of that? Yeah, it sure is too. And and even making those decisions, it's funny how that actually plays right into earning the trust and respect of the team. And a lot of times when you make the decision, that, that, that trust doesn't come fast and they may actually doubt you. And you may go through a period of, of 30 days or, or maybe even a couple months where people think you made the wrong decision and you have to be comfortable with that. When they start to see your your big, you know, tough or difficult or, or you know, decisions or changes, when they start to see that stuff working, that's when that's when the magic happens and that's when you realize that you've started to establish trust and they're starting to respect you. And from there, the whole ride gets a heck of a lot easier. Uh, and that's why I put so much emphasis on, on getting through those, those, those parts quickly um, and, and not, you know, doing anything to delay them because once you're through them, the rest of the ride actually is easier. I love it. So those are the first two, anything else like on your, like, some of the non-negotiables that you put into building your org? 
Um, yeah, I mean, the last piece is that you have to create a process for scale, right? I so, love it. Yeah, <laughs> that's and that's the big stuff, right? So, and and uh, you've built your relationships, you've you've created trust, you've outlined the right organization, you have let people go, you've brought people on the team, you've put all, you've essentially put the right people in the right positions. Now it's time to really make sure that the process is is ready to go. And the reason I put doing the things on the team first uh, is just because if you try to build a process while you have the wrong people in the wrong positions, it's really difficult, right? And it's only going to hold you back. So I think it's important to get those right people in those positions first. And now it's time to figure out a process for scale. This is something that that I take real seriously. And I, I think a lot of people maybe make the mistake of assuming that what worked for maybe your first two or five or even 10 salespeople will work for uh, 50 or 100 or 150. And it's, it's not always the case. And it's usually not the case. Uh, and so you have to start to design a process that's repeatable, that's teachable, and that not only can work for your best salesperson, because we all know almost anything can work for your best salespeople and they may do some crazy things that, you know, just really don't make sense. Uh, you need to figure out a process that will work for average or even below average salespeople, especially if you're high growth and you're going to be hiring a lot of people quickly. Um, reality is after six months or 12 months of hiring a bunch of people, you get to a point where the majority of your team uh, has been selling for less than a year. And you need a process that caters to that. So you have to dumb things down and you have to make them as simple to learn. And of course, you know, as people get more experience, they can excel into more advanced process or strategies, but you got to start there. All right. Those are three good relationships of trust and respect. Uh, fill out the org chart with the right people. Once you know, you've got the, that respect going and then we're going to build some processes. <clears throat> as you look at process, process is a word that, is a fat word sometimes. Everybody talks about sales process. Uh, and I don't want to make this whole interview about process because I got a few other things to go uh, into in the next like 10 minutes we have or so together. Sure. Um, any thoughts about, you know, what's the most important, is there a most important part of process? Because you've looked at it, you know, everybody's talking about process. What does process mean to you? How do you know if you actually have a process? How do you get people to use process? Any kind of thoughts about like, being the architect of a sales process? Yeah, I think it comes down to repeatability, right? I think you know when you have, and, and by the way, a process, you're never done developing your process. So glad you said that. Yeah, it, it has to, it's, it's a never ending battle. It has to keep it, you have to keep making iterations on it. But when you get to a point where you have something that's relatively well documented and you can bring in a group of folks who are, are brand new and haven't done it before and you can teach that to them and with a bit of training and a bit of following the documentation, they can start to close sales. Uh, I think it's safe to say you have a process at, at that point. Okay. I like it. That's a good definition. So let's, Let's shift off of this for a second. Um, you've talked about culture. We kind of talked around that. maybe one question on culture because you have talked about, you know, how you build it. What do you think culture is? If you're to say, like, to me, culture is blank, what's culture and and how important is it to you? It's a good question. So, and I think there's there's kind of two sides to culture, right? There's the company culture as a whole, and then there's the sales culture. And they're two different things. They obviously overlap a lot. Um, It's hard to put a, a definition on it, but for me, what's most important in sales culture, I'll talk about specifically, uh, is having 
an atmosphere of not complaining, of not making excuses, and of the willingness to work incredibly hard. And then hand in hand with that comes celebrating massively when you win. And, you know, there's, this is, I'm not, I'm not rewriting the playbook here. I mean, this is the culture of any good uh, and well-performing, you know, high growth sales team, but you have to eliminate excuses. You have to eliminate complaining. If there's one thing that I'd say is the most important in a sales culture, it's making sure that you have zero tolerance for that. Uh, and, and oh, only that. having people on the team who are bought into that. Cause the second the complaining starts, there's always something to complain about. Uh, it's, it's cancerous at that point. I'm so glad that we stopped because that's a huge ad, man. <clears throat> the no excuse mentality. I find that people, when they miss, they look out the window and when they hit, they look in the mirror. Of course. How do you build that culture? Just one thought on that. And then I, I know where I want to go for a few minutes before we wrap it up. Yeah, I think you build that culture by obsessively talking about it nonstop, always, and calling people out when they when they start to to slip up on it. And I I do it in somewhat of a joking way. Like I when I first will introduce myself to a new sales team and explain kind of my philosophy on sales, I say it pretty much the way that I just said it to you. Um, and then you just have to be willing to nip it in the bud when you see it and call people out uh, and, and remind them that making that excuse or focusing on something that's out of your control is never, ever, ever going to help you. And if you keep reminding people that we're not just saying no excuses because excuses are annoying, we're saying no excuses because they're ineffective and they're not going to help you change. And so if you focus on things that you can control that's how you get better. And so if someone comes to me with a complaint or an excuse, my immediate reaction to them is what are you going to do about it, right? What can you do about it? So maybe your leads are bad or, or something broke in Salesforce or something didn't work. I get it. You're not an engineer. You can't fix that today. What can you do? How do you get over that speed bump? Come to me with that and then I will, will help you. Uh, and when people shift their mindset to that, the, 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 the limits are endless. Uh, so good. So we're going to, this will be the last uh, one we go into before we start to wrap this up the way we wrap everyone up. And I can't wait to do this one with you. Um, your role, as you say, the role is to be a teacher, a trainer, someone who can help people learn how to do something and, and develop new skills. You have a background as a great salesperson. You have a background as a great sales trainer. So you, as you look at fulfilling this role, teaching, training, how do you build a learning organization? Is there anything that you found works particularly well in helping salespeople develop new skills, anything that you could kind of share with our listeners on how they might build that kind of a learning organization and things they might adapt and use to help train and teach some of their people? Yeah, good question. So <clears throat> I think it's twofold, right? First is you have to have the right leaders in place. And if you're scaling quickly, it's not just on you. And it, it quickly at Aircall, it went from, from being me for the first few months. And I, we immediately outgrew my capacity to train everyone. So I had to bring in the right people. Um, one of them was an internal promotion and, and the other was an external hire. Uh, so a lot of it comes down to, to picking those right people. And the other piece that I think people often leave out or they don't think a lot about is utilizing the existing team to train each other. Mentorships, sitting people next to the right people. 
Um, we experiment with a lot of different strategies on that here. <clears throat> when I was early on, before I had a sales development leader here, um, I had 10 SDRs. I had about five AEs. I couldn't train them all. I couldn't manage them all. It was too many people to, to handle every single day. And so we, we paired everyone up and we sat the SDRs right next to account executives. And in the first 30 days of doing that, our SDRs went from achieving roughly 60% of their quota to over 100%. And wow. we did that because it was, that was the biggest impact that I had in such a short, or I can't say I had, um, that a decision I made had in such a short amount of time. And it was just leveraging the people that were already here. And, uh, you know, they all already know what the newer people need to know. And so if you put it all on the back of the sales manager, you're probably going to move at a much slower pace than if you find a way to leverage everyone that's already there that already knows a lot of these things and use them as well. And so if you, if you do both of those things, you can move really fast. Uh, I, I think that's the key, especially if you're hiring a lot of entry level, you know, people straight out of college who have no experience. And sometimes the best learning they get comes from their peers rather than their manager because they respect them at a different level, I think, because they're doing the same job. How important is it for a manager to be able to do the job? Now that you said that, that's, that's kind of a hot topic right now. How important yeah. is that? I, it's, it's essential, right? You have to, it comes to part of earning the respect. So if you have a sales leader come in who's never done anything even remotely close or what they did was maybe so long ago that you're just like, Oh, I don't want to hear about back in the day anymore. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a, I, you know, it's a hard obstacle to, to overcome. And so, it was, I'll say there was, it was much easier for me to earn the respect of people at single platform because I was the top salesperson there for a year. And so that, they didn't even have to think twice about right. respecting what I said. Right? right. And so it took 30 seconds. It didn't even take a day to earn that respect. But when you come in as a VP of sales and you did not do the job, and of course you can spend some time doing it, but really you don't have the time to spend a year selling and proving And it's not yourself. your role, by the way. It's not your job. You, you, you will fail in everything else if you spend your time on it. So, um, you need to do a little bit of it. Um, and I think, you know, for me, it's not about, I, I, I strongly am against getting on calls with AEs, uh, if they didn't ask you to and only doing it when they ask you to and making sure that they know that if they need you, ask me and, and I will be there to help you. Um, but only doing it when they ask you to. That's your opportunity right there to really earn their respect and show that you can do it. Because usually if you leave it up to just when they ask you, those are the times that they're really having trouble and they don't know what to do. And that's where you can come in and actually help. Because if you make the mistake of being the VP who gets on calls all the time when the rep doesn't really want you to, now you're helping in an area where they actually thought they could already do it. And if it doesn't go well, they're going to say, well, it's because you got on my call. But if you get on the call, yeah, yeah, you lost my deal and forget about earning their respect there. But if you can get on a call when they're in one of those most difficult situations and find a way through it, uh, you've just won that, that person over. And and, uh, it only takes a few of those instances to earn their respect. All right. So that creates one last one before I wrap it up. I apologize, but you're, I love your depth, Colin. I, I like you. You're awesome. I, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a, a terrific conversation. For sure. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So you're talking about training. You're talking about teaching, you know, that's classroom setting. That's like, you know, I love your tactic of getting with their peers because they respect them. They use you to help like, you know, get through the most difficult stuff. 
where does the one-on-one coaching fit into your model? I mean, is, how does that play? How important is it? Any, it's any top of mind thoughts on that? Yeah, it's really important. Sales reps need need one-on-one time uh, in two different formats, I think. They need one-on-one time out on the floor. Uh, I think at least a, an hour a week with their manager where you're actually coaching them on calls, whether it's going back and listening to a call after it happened, depending on your selling environment, or you're actually giving them uh, live feedback while they're on the call. So we use, we use air call where we can whisper into their ear while they're on a call. So they'll hear us giving them a little bit of advice while they're on the call. So when people are very junior and very entry level, we like to do it live like that. Once they get a little bit more experience, it's more reactive. It's more, let's go back and listen to a call afterwards. Um, and, and the reason, by the way, that when they're really junior, you want to give them the live help is because they're actually panicking. They don't know what to say in the moment. Yeah. Um, once they get more comfortable, it, it can be more of let's go back and, and listen to the call. Um, and the other piece is the one-on-one attention that's off the floor. And that's, that's more of a, it's almost like, I think that's where you're kind of being their psychiatrist to some extent. You're, you're seeing where their head's at, you're seeing how they're feeling, and you're getting a sense of uh, what they actually need from you outside of just, you know, tactical coaching. Um, it's real important for a manager to have, I think, those two different one-on-one relationships, which is the tactical sales coaching, usually out on the floor, um, and then just like, hey, let's just sit down, like, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Um, and let them talk. That's the most important thing. Don't go into your one-on-one with some super structured list of things that you need to fill out. Just start the one-on-one by saying, how's it going? How are you feeling? And see where the conversation goes. Uh, and and uh, I couldn't imagine leading people without doing that. Thanks for sharing all those things. So we're, at, we're, we're done. We're out of time. This has been a great interview. I for sure, I'm going to get a lot of great feedback on this one. And and we're going to have to come in and circle again. I'd like to dive into a little more of that uh, individual stuff that you just started to allude to. But I, I wrap everything up the same way. So we're going to hit the rapid fire. Are you ready, man? Sure, man. Let's do it. <clears throat> All right. Number one, biggest sales leadership challenge and how do you beat it? Greatest sales leadership challenge, I think, and this is maybe a touchy subject for, for some people, but it's the managing up part. It's, it's the part that's not even dealing with your team. It's dealing with your CEO or your finance team or your board of directors. Um, and it doesn't matter how awesome they are. There is always a bit of work that needs to be done to manage their expectations and to stay aligned with them. Um, cause you become a victim of your own success. If you don't do that, the better you do, the bigger the expectations become. And if you don't, you know, kind of pump the brakes on that, uh, I think that's the reason that the average VP of sales keeps their job for 19 months because expectations become beyond what they're probably capable of or what's even realistic, I should say. Um, and so that side of, of the job of being a VP of sales is really important. No one is ever trained on how to do it. You That's have to true. figure it out. Um, and, and it's really critical to have a great relationship with your CEO, with your finance team, and make sure that they as well trust you um, and that they have a sense of understanding that when you're saying, hey, we need to maybe pump the brakes on this forecast or here's what I think we could actually do, they need to trust that you're not just saying that so you can crush a ridiculous goal, but you're saying that to have the right outcome for the business. And that relationship, that's a whole thing that that plays into sales leadership, especially at the VP level, um, that no one really talks about. And I think it's really important. 
Love that. Great answer. Uh, the only person who's been in that vein is Sam Jacobs of the Revenue Collective, and he would agree with you a thousand percent. I know him very well. Yeah. Yeah. He thinks that's maybe the biggest challenge that leaders never get trained on, and they, as a result, get chewed up and spit out. So, yeah. Exactly right. Okay. Uh, number two, and I already have I've got a little bit of insight for you on this, so I cannot wait for you to get this one. This is, a, again, from our listeners. They want to know, when you're interviewing people, what's kind of a go-to question What's your approach to interviewing people? Is there something that is very insightful for you? Is there like a thought around that for you? Sure. Yeah. My, my thoughts on interviews are maybe a, a little bit uh, different are. than, I than love most. Of this. Yeah, I love this. <laughs> uh, I, I think people need to stop with the, the bullshit and they need to stop trying to make an interview some sort of scientific scientific uh, algorithm or something. Uh, it's not. And, and I've tried every tactic in the books. I've, I've read everything out there. I've tried it all. When you are hiring salespeople, uh, it comes down to a couple things. You need to go with your gut and you need to make sure that you can probably have a good relationship with that person. And after that point, it's a complete gamble. And anyone who says it's not, I'd love to see the stats on the people they've hired and how they've worked out and how they differ from, from my stats. Um, cause I've hired people with phenomenal resumes, industry experience, great reputations and I've watched them fail. And then I've hired people that have zero experience, maybe didn't even finish college in a few examples. Um, but I just believed in them and I brought them in and they became better than anyone on the team. So, uh, I, I try not to overthink it again. I'm going to go back to, a. a you know, the, the firing piece, that's where you need to put your focus, take more risks on hiring because it's a gamble anyway, just make the right decisions on letting people go at the right time as fast as you know, you need to. And that's the key to the success because, um, you don't have all the facts when you're hiring someone, but when you're making the decision to let them go, you have all of the facts and you have all of the proof and you know exactly how they're performing, uh, in your company, in your scenario, uh, and today in their life, right? Because it's not just about um, what they're capable of or what they've done in their past. We've all seen great salespeople have great runs and then go through a tough period of their life that affects their work. And you may hire a great salesperson during that period of their life, and then you see a different outcome. So uh, don't overthink the hiring. Go with your gut. Try to be efficient. Just get the decisions made as fast as possible. Have a really good process for training them and a really good process for weeding out the ones that don't work. Great answer. I love it, dude. I freaking love the way you look at that. Last one, man. Um, leaders are readers. And I don't care if it's your turn of pages. I'm, I am old school. I like to still turn pages. I don't care if it's audibles. I don't care if it's podcasts. I don't care if it's blogs. Is there anything uh, you'd suggest uh, to our people that uh, they, if they aren't reading that maybe they should or, or putting in their head uh, something that that's helpful in, in developing their leadership journey? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, I, and I think I referenced the Navy SEALs earlier, and yep. that's where I got this from. Uh, extreme ownership. If, if, you're, if you're in a leadership capacity or honestly, even if you're an individual contributor, uh, there, and it goes back to my culture of no excuses, no complaining, hard work, um, you're going to get all of that from extreme ownership. I personally loved the audio book. It's actually in his voice, and, and uh, yeah, it's really good. So. Awesome. That's the one. Good suggestion. Okay. This was amazing. Uh, congrats to you, Colin. It's no surprise. And I find as I get great leaders like you, success is almost never a happy accident. And as I listen to you and the way <clears throat> that you've organized how you've led your team, it's clear uh, that success was something that was well thought out, well organized, and most important, well executed. 
How do people, when they want to continue the conversation, how do they learn more about you? How do they get with you? How do they learn more about Air Call? That whole thing. How do, how do they get more? Yeah, sure. So I've become really active on LinkedIn lately. I'm really enjoying interacting with uh, people I don't know in the larger sales community. So so uh, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Reach out with me. Obviously, if you're interested in Aircall, go to aircall.io. Um, sign up for a free trial or give us a call. Um, yeah, that's it. Okay, man. No excuses. I love it. I I, I, I love the, the chance we've had to learn from you. Um He's the dude that has eliminated excuses from one of the fastest growing communications platforms in the world right now. Colin, thank you so much for joining us and happy selling. Thanks, Rob. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another So What portion of the Sales Leadership Podcast, where we break down that interview and we ask ourselves, why did that conversation even matter? And I am super, super excited and appreciative that Colin Cadmus was willing to join us. He's doing amazing things with his team at Aircall. Uh, if you don't follow him on LinkedIn, you need to. He puts out ridiculously good content on a regular basis. And I'm not going to try and, and reiterate the whole interview. You need to go back and listen to it. Take your notepad out. This is one that you're going to want to listen to a few times. Colin had a few things that really, really resonated with me. It really started with his definition of role, where he said that the role of a sales leader is to teach and to train salespeople. And he went so far as to say, if you can't teach and train, you can't be an effective sales leader. And I agree. You know, I really think that we need to sit down and say, what's our teaching and training game looking like? Because too many reps right now are feeling like they're not getting good coaching. You know, less than half think they get it at all. Only 13% of the time do they get it in a way that they like and they think is appreciative. And it's now for sure an acceptable reason to leave a company if you're not getting good coaching. There's a lot of other things he talked about uh, in, in this interview around that. And, and I thought it was really cool how his whole blueprint started out with building insanely strong relationships. In fact, the word he used was insane. Spend insane amounts of time understanding your people inside and out. And that led to uh, getting the right people on the bus, uh, and ultimately process. And you need to go back and listen to it. But my favorite part of what Colin talked about was their culture. No excuses. Uh, the, the, the words that he used were eliminate excuses. And this goes to culture. Are we building a learning and a growing and development culture? And I want to spend a few minutes talking about this because uh, Colin's comments could not have come more timely in what I'm seeing happen with other sales leaders and what's happening in my life. I found myself having some life experiences that have had me stop and say, Rob, you have been too focused on responsibilities and not focused enough on opportunities and, and you. Um, I've had some LinkedIn posts on this and I've been talking about this uh, and I'm actively writing things down now saying, what is Jepson 2.0? 2.0 going to be about. I own a software company. We lead a software company. And watching the iteration of our product has been exciting because it's amazing where we are right now on 3.17 versus where we were at 1.0 three years ago. And I'd like to challenge each of you to say, am I taking an iterative approach to my life and my career, or am I just getting through? Colin talked about the most important way that you can create this no-excuses culture is to, is to say, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Always bring things that we're going to do about. What will I do next? Not what happened. Let's not focus on lack of resources. Let's not, let's not focus on what went wrong. Let's talk about what we're going to do. And today, as I was working on this, I got an email from Anthony Iannarino. If you don't take Anthony's newsletter, if you don't look at his work, you ought to look at that. I really highly recommend it. 
He talked about two lenses that we can look through negative experiences, things that Colin talked about might bring excuses, the lens of regret or the lens of lessons. One's looking backwards, one's looking forwards. One's saying, woe is me. One's saying what Colin says, what am I going to do about it? I really think that these three things are, are coming together at a time where the best thing I can share with you right now as you listen to this podcast, are you actively working on the 2.0, 3.0 version of your life? Are you waiting until life says you need to make changes and being unfortunate about it, like maybe where I have been? Or are you going to be more intentional about it and say, I'm going to be rapidly trying to change things? And I'm talking about not just how you approach your career, because I've been doing that, doing a lot of change in the career. I think we need to take that approach to life, because I do believe that it's impossible to be as, as successful or effective as we want to be as a leader if we are not being as successful and effective as we want to be with our life. Love yourself, take care of yourself, uh, iterate yourself, and make it so if your people on your team see you iterating, they can first emulate, and then they can iterate. I think that's the best lesson that we can learn from Colin. Colin has tons of killer leadership tactics. I love it. Colin, thank you for joining us. But the thing that I want to leave with each of you, like I always say when we say, don't worry, we got you. Literally, don't worry. Uh, find ways to look through the lesson lens rather than the regret lens. Eliminate complaining from your life, and you will be able to eliminate complaining from your team. And if you start saying, what can I do, you can find yourself getting to the version of you 4.0, 5.0, which will drive the big, big success stories in your professional career. Because if you're living your best life, then you can do your best work. And that's what our mission here at Exloin is. That's what my personal mission is for each one of you, to help you be, help you help your reps live their best lives so they can do their very best work. And with that, as always, don't worry, just execute, and we got you. Thanks for joining us for the Sales Leadership Podcast, your weekly pipeline to the most successful thought leaders and rainmakers in sales. Make sure to check out additional episodes at salesleadershippodcast.com. The Sales Leadership Podcast is produced by Brian Jepson and is sponsored by Exployant, the modern sales leadership platform for salesforce.com users. You can visit Exployant at exvoyant.com.